You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. I don't know, I don't know why you came to church today. There are a lot of reasons to go to church, but I'm not guessing at the top of any of your lists is, I wanna hear some warnings about idolatry and judgment. But here we are. Our norm at Providence is we preach through books of the Bible, so the Bible is a compilation, uh, a unified compilation of books and letters, and we tend to just go through them as they come to us, and one of the things that means is we can't skip passages like this. Not only is this a long passage, there's a bunch of stuff in here that we're probably not very familiar with, and, or at least we don't think about very much. We've got Old Testament stories where like serpents are killing people and they were sent by God. We've got temple sacrifices, demons and participating with demons. We've got a jealous God, which is not normally how we think about him. Look, there's some strange stuff in here. Stuff that we don't think about. And one of the things that alerts us to, the fact that we don't think about these things very much, tells us a couple things about ourselves. One is it tells us we are more familiar with and probably more influenced by the world around us than the world of the Bible. It also tells us that we're probably unaware of the spiritual powers at work in this world and unaware of how we might be getting entangled in them. Our tendency is just to go with the flow. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen a crowd of people walking somewhere. If you're in a crowd of people and you're walking in one direction, the tendency of everyone in the crowd is to regulate their pace off of each other. They kind of like settle into an average pace. And the, the world around us in this way, when it comes to aspirations, when it comes to values, when it comes to what we think is cool or funny or meaningful, the world is setting a pace in those things. And our tendency, our natural inclination, is just to regulate our pace according to the world, just to settle into the middle of the pack. Some people run ahead of the pace, some people are lagging behind, but most of us like to be just kind of, it's comfortable in the middle. It seems reasonable, at least, compared to everyone around us. We don't stop to think if the pace is good or healthy. We don't stop to think if it's taking us in a good direction, like where are we going? We just see it as like normal life and we assume like God's good with it because this is what we're all doing and it seems to be doing okay. Something like that is happening in Corinth. In this ancient city of Corinth, uh, there was a, a diversity of gods, many temples, temples on every corners, sacrifices being made to the gods of those temples and it was so normal. It was as normal as like getting coffee in the morning. People would get up, they would make sacrifices to gods, and their hope was that, you know, if I just diversify my prayers to all these different gods, these gods will prosper me in these different areas of my life. That sounds strange to us, I'm just telling you, it was so normal to them. When the sacrifices were made in these temples, some of the meat was served in the temple. They had like cafes, if you will. Uh, they had festivals and ritual meals and social gatherings. Corinthians would go eat meals at the temples just like we would go get tacos at Torchies. I mean, it was just part of how you did life. And so uh, the question was, now that I'm a Christian, can I still do that? 
Because not to do that would be weird, honestly. It would be culturally weird. It would also cost them something. I mean, they went to the temples for social connection, to do business. It was kind of like what we might do at happy hour. That was normal for them. And not to do that would cost them something and would be culturally weird. And so can we still do that? That's the question they're asking Paul. And some of the Christians in Corinth, those who thought themselves to kind of like have a certain knowledge, you know, freedom, they had decided that, okay, it's okay to do. The gods aren't real. The idols aren't real. I, I believe in Jesus. I'm not worshiping these gods. I'm just here for the food and the social life. It's okay. And Paul's response to them is varied. In chapter eight, he tells them, hey, I want you to think about how this might affect others. Other Christians see you at these temples and they think it must be okay to pay tribute to the gods. And if they're weaker in their faith, they may end up stumbling and falling back into idol worship. I want you to think about them. But now in chapter 10, in the passage we just read, Paul has another angle and he says, hey, this isn't just about them. This is about you. The danger isn't just that they may stumble and fall. The danger is that you may stumble and fall. And so what's the danger? The main concern running through this chapter is the issue of idolatry. You see it at least four times explicitly, but more than that. Uh, Now, to the Corinthians, they knew that idolatry was all around them. But there was this group of people that thought, okay, I get it. That's life in Corinth. but I don't think I'm going to in danger of anything here. I feel like I can handle it. And that's the point of the passage. It's like, it's a warning passage. You don't warn people who are already aware. You'll warn people something they're, they're not aware of, and they're not aware. So they knew idolatry was around them. It was a thing in Corinth. But I want to tell you guys, it's a thing for us too. The temples are different. The idols are different. The sacrifices are different, but idolatry is still very real and alive in our culture and in our hearts. And so this warning is not just for them, it's for us. I want to look at their situation with you, but as we go, I want to try to connect the dots to our situation. And so let's talk about um, the reality of idolatry, the power of idolatry, and then what we're supposed to do about it, how we can deal with the idolatry. All right, open your Bibles if you have them. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it's a long passage. We're obviously not gonna dive into every detail, but it'd be great if you could follow along as we go. The Christians in Corinth who were eating in the temples didn't see anything wrong with it because again, they believed in Jesus. They'd been baptized into his name. Uh, They went to church every week. They took communion. They were a part of the community of God's people. And so even though they're aware of all of the stuff that's happening around them, they don't feel threatened by it. They don't, they feel protected in some way, like like spiritual failure is not possible for them. And Paul in this first section is just trying to say it is. (laughs) It is possible for those who have been baptized and taken communion and who go to church every week. It is possible for those people to fail spiritually. And to make his point, he takes us back to some stories in the history of Israel. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians 10. I do not want you to be unaware, 
brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Here he's saying, all of them. These are the people that God chose. He set his love upon them. He delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. He delivered them through the Red Sea, which was no small deal. He provided for them in the wilderness, miraculously, food and drink. God was with them. God was blessing them. And they all saw it. They all experienced it. Verse 5, nevertheless... With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And that's a generous verse. Because in fact, two of them made it into the promised land. So God was not pleased with basically all of them. And that word overthrown means like slain, strewn in the wilderness. They were judged. All right, so they all experienced God, and yet most of them fell away and were judged. What happened to them? Well, Paul cites four examples, four stories that illustrate what happened to them and, and what happens to us. Verse 7, he says, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Uh, this is a reference to Exodus 32. Moses, their leader, is up on the mountain with God. He's going to come down with a word from God, but he's up there quite a while. And the people down below are like, hey, we haven't seen Moses in a while. We've never seen God. I don't, I don't know what we should. They got restless. And so they convinced Moses' brother Aaron to make for them an idol. They gave him valuable jewelry. And Aaron threw it in the fire, and poof, came out this golden calf, and they worshipped it. Now listen, that sounds so crazy to us. But again, they're just trying to worship God even in ways that feel familiar to them. They're trying to take control of the situation and when they feel restless. This is the essence of idolatry. To make or put a created thing in the place of God. And it leads to all kinds of foolish and sinful behavior. Paul focuses on this phrase that they, uh, they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Uh, this language is an allusion to the kind of revelry that was involved in pagan feasts and rituals. It's not good. It's not good behavior. Verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual morality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. This is a reference to Numbers 25. The people of God, Israel, was staying in the plains of Moab, and, you know, what happens in Moab stays in Moab, right? So the men of Israel get restless. And they begin to have sexual relationships with the daughters of Moab, it says. And the daughters of Moab begin to invite the men of Israel and the people of Israel to come to their ritual feasts. And so they come because they've formed this bond now. And the text tells us that they ate the feasts and they bowed down to their gods. And this kindled the anger of Yahweh. And 23,000 of them died that day. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. So in Numbers 21, 
We get a story about the people of Israel speaking against Moses and God. They, they had contempt for God. They rejected the gifts that God had given them. They wanted something else. And this kindled God's anger. And he sent snakes among them that bit the people, and many people died there. Verse 10, let us not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Grumbling kind of just describes the entire wilderness experience for Israel. Uh, grumbling was their response to not getting their way. It was their response to discomfort. God provided miraculous food and drink for them, and they were like, yeah, this isn't, can we get some meat? They even said they wanted to go back to Egypt. They would rather be in slavery and have some better food. They grumbled. The point of these examples is to show that even though Israel was blessed by God, they were not immune from spiritual failure. They were not immune from sin and idolatry. In fact, they were really prone to it. <laughs> and we're not that different. Verse six, Paul tells us, now these things took place as examples so that for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. And verse 11 says, these things were written down for our instruction. You see what he's saying? This wasn't just a problem for them. This is a problem for us too. We need to learn from them. Notice, Paul does not say these things are written down so that we might not do what they did. He says so that we might not have evil desires like they had. We might not desire evil like some of them did. That's the real problem. Behaviors, our, our sinful behaviors, our foolish behaviors, that all points to what's going on in our heart. You know, John mentioned the quote from Jesus that a good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit. You can't walk up to a bad tree and see the bad fruit and be like, man, this fruit is no good. I want to take some good fruit and put it on this tree. It just won't work. Fruit's produced by the tree. And so if you've got idolatrous behaviors, it means there's some evil desire, some idolatrous desires going on in your heart. That's what Paul tells us is going on in their heart. They had evil desires. The word here and throughout the New Testament actually means over-desire, too much desire. And so idolatry isn't always and not even usually like a desire for a bad thing. Often. Idolatry is an over-desire for a good thing. Just a simple example. Like a reputation, that's a good thing. It is a good thing to be respected, well thought of, to live an admirable life. That's a good thing. But if reputation becomes everything to you, it becomes your God, that you will get entangled in some really foolish behavior and sinful behavior. You'll lie to protect your reputation. You'll push others down to exalt yourself. Do you see what I'm saying? It's a good thing, but over-desire for it turns it into an idol. So idolatry is not always a desire for a bad thing. It can be a too much desire for a good thing. Idolatry is also not just like choosing something instead of God. Often it's trying to set something alongside of God in addition to God. Israel had God, but they wanted more. They had God, but they wanted the freedom to worship God however they felt 
They had God, but they also wanted sexual freedom. They had God, but they also wanted Egypt. They had God, but they just wanted a more comfortable life. And in the absence of getting the and, the other thing, they got restless, discontent, grumbling. All right, so what's your and? You believe in God, great. What else is it that you think you need to be happy and satisfied? That and is producing in you evil desires. Some of the Corinthians wanted God and life as usual. God and the temple meals. And it didn't feel like a big deal to them, but Paul is saying, no, this, this and bit, this is how you fall away from the one true God. I know that meat sacrificed in temples is not a thing for most of us, all of us, really. So we have to ask, like, what is it? What are the idols of our culture? There's so many, and there's so much written on this. Uh, let's just start here. Just, just think about the litany of things that are paraded before us regularly as the key to happiness. Money and possessions, pleasure and adventure, health and fitness, knowledge and power, family. These are all good things, but they're not good gods. They can't provide for you what only God can provide. If your sense of identity and worth and purpose is tied up in any of this, anything other than God, then that thing has become an idol for you. Another way to think about it is just to think about your desires. So don't think about what you say you believe. Don't think about like how you would answer on a religious test. That's not really the concern here. Think about your behaviors, your actual life, and what that reveals about what's going on in your heart. What are the desires driving your actual life? Like, do you work too much? Okay, maybe that points to an idol of success or respect. You talk too much? Maybe that points to an idol of attention or approval. You save too much? Maybe that points to an idol of security. Spend too much? Maybe that points to an idol of comfort or pleasure. Are you obsessed? Do you obsess over things like a relationship or your body or your environment? Maybe that points to an idol of control. Are you noncommittal, afraid of authority and accountability? Most definitely, that points to an idol of autonomy. What are the desires underneath your behaviors? That's how you begin to identify the idols of your heart. So much of the behaviors that I just listed feel normal, don't they? Like we're just going with the flow of life in Austin. It doesn't feel like we're in danger of falling away from God. But Paul says, yeah, let the one who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So to think you're not in danger is the first sign that you're probably in danger. And you need to take heed 
That brings us to the second thing, the power of idolatry. There's a reason Paul's warning us. Jump down to verse 15. We'll come back to the other verses. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 15. Think about the power of idolatry. The cup, or I speak as sensible people, as two sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say, sorry. So he's gonna just say like, let me work this out for you in some logic, in some reason. I think you're smart, you'll follow. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, one bread, we who are many who are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that sin or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. Okay, so to help these Corinthians understand the danger of the temple meals, Paul makes a comparison with two other meals that they're familiar with. The communion meal, which they celebrated and we observe every week, and the meal of the Old Testament sacrificial worship system. The key word in these verses is participation. It's the Greek word koinonia. It means fellowship, partnership. It's five times in like these three verses. Uh, You see it in verse 16 twice. In verse 17, the word is partake. It's the same word. In verse 18, the word is participants. It's the same word. Paul is saying, okay, think about our worship service. Think about the communion meal. Think about even the Old Testament and their worship services and the sacrificial meals surrounding the altar. In both worship services, eating and drinking is part of the worship. And to eat and drink the meal was to identify with and have fellowship with everyone else who ate and drank the meal and with the God of the meal. You see where he's going? When you go into these temples, Corinthians, no matter what you believe, to eat and drink the meal that was sacrificed to idols in that temple is to participate in the worship. It is to have fellowship with those who eat the meal and with the gods of the meal, whatever you think about them. Now, the question they would have is this. Okay, but idols are nothing. If, if an idol is nothing, then what's the harm? Like, what is fellowship with nothing? And Paul anticipates the question. Verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. Now, that's a gear shift, isn't it? We're talking about demons now. If meat sacrifice to idols wasn't strange enough, now we're talking about demons. This is the part where we're tempted to start disassociating our world from the world of the Bible. And I just want to ask you not to do that. Not being aware of what's really happening in the world is how you fall away. Paul's trying to help us understand what's really happening. Paul says, let me tell you what's going on in the temple. They're worshiping a God that's not really a God, and an idol is nothing but a piece of wood. None of it's real, but 
there's a real spiritual power behind it. When people offer sacrifices to an idol, they are entangling themselves in destructive, deceptive, demonic powers. An idol just represents a reality. At the very least, it represents a value system that is opposed or competes with God. Let me give you an example. Let's take something in our culture that's plain to see, like materialism. Uh, Materialism, here's how the definition defines materialism. A tendency to consider material possessions and physical comfort as more important than spiritual values. That is so entrenched in our culture that it does, it, we're not even aware of it. Materialism is at least a set of values that would choose, prioritize, and desire money over integrity, comfort over generosity, image over honesty, consumption over contribution, things over people. Where do those desires come from? You ever been sitting around and just felt like buying something? No reason, nothing specific in mind. You just feel like buying stuff. So you start scrolling Amazon or Costco ads or whatever you're into, just looking for something to buy. Why? Where does that come from? We have so much stuff, so much luxury. Like, I I would bet more than any other people in any other time or place in history. And yet, we have this constant nagging feeling that we lack, that we need something else. Where does that come from? You see, the gods of materialism represent a reality, a dark spiritual force that wants to lure you into stuff so that you might sacrifice Things that are really important on that altar. There are common sayings and slogans in our culture that represent value systems that are opposed to God. And look, most of them don't even make sense. Like if you just hold them up to the light of a little bit of reason, it's like that doesn't even make sense. And yet they proliferate. They wield incredible power in our culture over the public conscience. And have you ever just asked yourself, how can that be? How do all of these smart people say that and like live by that as if it were a creed? Well, how is that? It's not the slogan. It's the power behind the slogan. And when we give ourselves to the slogans, to the God of materialism, we participate with the powers behind them whether we know it or not. I'm not saying that if you buy something that you don't need, you're a devil worshiper. I'm just saying that we should at least stop and think. We should just ask, do I have desires and practices that unknowingly might be participating with the schemes of the evil one? Am I promoting values and practices that are in competition with God? 
Incidentally, idols will completely ruin your life. They promise happiness, but they do not deliver. They suck the life out of you. Materialism will ruin you and it will ruin a culture. It just doesn't take a lot of observation to see that. That's the power. That's the danger. There's another danger here. And in comparison, it's a, it's a far graver danger. Verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are you stronger than him? The Corinthians wanted to participate in the shaping liturgy of the culture and the shaping liturgy of the church. They wanted to go to both tables. And it's ludicrous. It's like if you're married and you say, like, look, I don't, I don't want to get a divorce. I just want to sleep around with other people. I want to set this alongside that. I want both. No spouse in their right mind is open to that. God is not willing to have an open relationship with his people. He demands fidelity and allegiance and devotion because he's worthy of it and because he gave up his son to secure it. He's the only God. And if you give yourself to any other God, it kindles his anger. He will not have any rivals. And you don't want him to. If you have a spouse that doesn't care if you sleep around, that spouse doesn't love you. If you have a God that is willing for you to play with fire and other gods, he doesn't love you. Our God loves us. And when you love someone, you get angry at the things that ruin them. Paul is telling them, don't go to the temple meals. There, look, there are some gray areas. There are some questions about certain situations where eating the meat that had been sacrificed to idols might be okay. We're gonna get to all that next week. We gave Todd the easy stuff. Here, here, Paul's saying, it's in a temple where the food was sacrificed to an idol. It's explicit idol worship. Don't do that. Get out. This is a little bit like a parent telling a teenager that they can't do something that all of their friends are doing. The teenager will no doubt be incredulous. They will not understand why you're making such a big deal out of this. And they will add, I know what I'm doing, trust me. But the reality is, is that the parent knows about pressures and powers that are at work in those places that the kid can't see and cannot overcome. The pain point for the teen is that they're gonna feel left out, maybe ostracized by their friends. Paul is warning these Christians who are afraid they're gonna get left out and who think they know better. Listen, there's powers at work that you can't see. Take heed. Are you guys willing to take heed? to like receive a warning. It grates against everything our culture wants to tell you you are. Like you do you, follow your heart, trust your gut. We don't want to believe that we need a warning. We want to believe that we're doing just fine. 
If that is your disposition, man, the Bible's gonna be just difficult for you. And God is gonna be hard to get to know because he has warnings. A warning is not condemnation. It's an invitation. A warning says, hey, you're headed for destruction. I'm inviting you to come to me, take refuge in me, is what God is saying. That's the last thing. What do we do? Like practically speaking, what do we do about the reality and the powers of idolatry in our world? Verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved flee from idolatry. Okay, there's three things here. We're gonna do this really quick. There's a warning, take heed, a promise, God is faithful, and a command, get out, flee idolatry. This is what we do. We take heed. We, in humility, recognize that it's possible for us to fall away. We consider the Israelites and we don't think we're better than them. We consider our own situation and we don't assume that we know better and that we got knowledge and we got strength of our own. We certainly don't look sin in the eye and say, it's okay, God will forgive me. That, that is presuming upon his grace. We take heed and we trust God. Here's the promise, God is faithful. There is enormous pressure in our world to bend down to the idolatry around us and not to participate in it will cost you. Might cost you some friendships, a job, some status, I don't know, personal dreams. It'll cost you. The promise here is that God will help you resist the pressure and even if you lose everything, you have him and he's more than enough. Verse 13 is not saying, as I think as we, as the slogans say, that God will not give you anything that you can't handle. That's not what it's saying. It's actually saying you can't handle it. And so you need to turn to God. He's the faithful one. He's the strong one. He's the one who can help you. Uh, Hebrews 4 says that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. And he did that so that he might offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And then it says, therefore, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So when the lies and the powers and the idols are pressing down on you, look to Jesus. He's the escape. Believe the gospel. Apply the gospel to your situation. Be in, live in community. Live in God's grace. This is how you endure the pressure and the temptation. Finally, flee idolatry. Uh, publicly, that just means if you're in a situation where there is pressure, to bow down, to adhere to, to promote, to affirm, to acknowledge in a positive way the gods of our culture. 
Don't do that. It will cost you. But to do that is to participate with the demonic forces that work behind those gods. Privately, and I mean individually and in community, the thing we're to do is just to ask questions of our own hearts. The problems are not all out there in the culture. The problems are in here, in the evil desires. And so we get to ask, what are the desires of my own heart? What feels like it's taking over, like it's an inordinate desire? And confess these things to one another. Repent of these things. This is the invitation. Flee from that and come find refuge in God. And Paul gives us just an incredible illustration for this. He's saying in the text, flee the tables in the temples and come to the table of the Lord. Come to the communion meal. Participate with him. At this table, we have fellowship with God and with one another. At this table, we come declaring our hunger for God and gladly receiving the food that he provides. At this table, we come declaring our weakness. This is not the table for people who know better and have it together. It's for people who desperately need God. And we declare our weakness, and by his grace, we are strengthened in faith. The ultimate reality is here, this table, the one true God, his beloved son given up for us, the spirit of God making those things real to our hearts as we take the meal. This is who we really are. This is what we really want. And Jesus is inviting us all to come and get it. He says, come, come all who are weary, all who are burdened, worn out by the idols of this world. Come, come to me. I'm gonna give you rest for your souls. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.